everybody, and welcome to a new edition of the award-winning Talking About Cars. Yes, where it's always about everybody has a car story, even celebrities and car personalities. I'm Randy Cardoon. I'm with you for every Talking About Cars. And if you've ever seen the TV show Car Chasers on CNBC, you're familiar with our guest today, Jeff Allen, the host who was based in Texas, yet chased cars pretty much all over the U.S. He always came to Southern California for clients. Jeff has a great story about his older brother having four wheels. I'll let him explain that for you. But first, the debate that is rocking the car world seems to be coming, whether we want it to or not. Uh, driverless cars. Now, I went to the College of Art and Design Car Show in Pasadena, California, checked out some pretty cool rides, classic, very stylish entries, where both visitors and students at the school gave me their thoughts on if driverless cars and cars with actual drivers, kind of like me, could live together on the same road. First, Let's hear from my pal Wes Nielsen of the Daily Driver Project. Well, I don't know that they're going to be able to exist on the same road, to be honest. Um, you may have it for a little while because the, the whole concept of the driverless car is to make it where um, it's more efficient for you to get to and from. You don't have trap. You don't because part of what the problem is is the human air existence of the car is you braking, you accelerating, you so on. And the whole concept of driverless cars that you don't have all those things to so get to wherever you're going more efficiently. Of course, uh, people like you and I, Randy, getting to, uh, we like driving our cars. That's a big part of who we are. So if we if we don't get to drive our cars, how are we going to be able to go anywhere? I, I, I don't know that I would ever want to have a driverless car. But, you know, you're going to see technology where it's going to be true of mass transit, too. I mean, basically, cars are going to become mass transit. It's not going to be like it was before. So I think you're going to see, uh, you'll also see more electric cars as part of it. Um, You see a lot of concepts, even here, if you walk around, a lot of the concepts that are here are basically cars that are, uh, um, no, there's no steering wheel in them at all. You basically get in and it's like a monorail system and it just goes. You know, really, you you press. noise, by the way, behind us, Jay Leno's Corvair Stinger. That's a beauty. If you're into Corvairs, that's a that's a beautiful Corvair. Free Camaro too. Exactly. So, but um, yeah, I think I I think the other thing too is though is that what will end up happening is is with the driverless cars because you're not selling as much the driver that part of it. You'll get the style part of it, and I think you'll start to see some outlandish styling start to happen because that will be what's selling the car. It's, it's the fact that, look at me in that vehicle. So I think that's what you're going to start seeing. They're going to have a certain part of the road look like uh, the rails at Disneyland, where thus the uh, driverless cars go, and then we go take the other side of the road? Well, I mean, this is years ago when I was first studying about automobiles, was that uh, they were talking about doing the magnetic roads. So there was a section up in San Francisco, as I remember, where they actually did a section of the freeway, and they put magnets every so often in the road, and the car picked up on those magnets, and that's how it drove. And you could drive cars like a foot away from each other because they understood and they communicated. And I think that's what's gonna you're gonna end up happening. I mean, they'll work off the lines that are in the road like they do now with optics and everything else, and so you'll get that. But you'll get cars that basically will go wherever you want you'll it's you know you'll have an autopilot on all the time basically i mean that's what it comes down to what kind of fun is that i, uh, I see no fun in that <laughs> students jeremy and don talked about driverless cars and whether or not they'd be ready to use them 
if it was like guaranteed safer and proven, I'd probably choose not to drive because I'm I'm not the best driver. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I feel like the concept's gonna take a while to get developed, but I think it'd be pretty cool. When you guys are in school here, do you sense that there's a shift? towards the driverless car that there's uh, you guys are I know you guys are designing some really cool cars but do you ever find yourself in a situation where that's kind of that kind of car is what you may be uh, designing for future use I think yeah we're kind of leaning more onto like the digital world so I think I mean I'm not really too sure because I, I don't design the cars I'm an illustrator so I don't necessarily draw cars but You'll do it for advertising purposes. Sure. <laughs> what about you? Um, well, like she said, we're illustrators, so we don't really design any of the cars at all. We just kind of draw ones that already exist. Um, it's not really our our job, and we don't we haven't studied four years to design cars. So, but when we see the models up on the walls, like in there, there's some really cool models that don't look like they have glass panes or anything. So those ones. It does seem like transportation is leaning a little bit more towards automated, but I'm, for all I know, those are just one, it's like you can't see through the windows on one side, so. That's a little weird. So do you like driving or would you rather have a car that drives you? I don't drive. <laughs> yeah. I see, okay. You have no desire to drive. I, I just haven't taken my driver's license. How old are you? I'm 20. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm not judging, not judging at all. Teach this girl how to drive, will you please? Yes, but students Charlie and Max pondered how drivers can actually survive on the same road as driverless, soulless pods of transportation. That's actually a tough question. Um, I definitely think there's going to be a smaller culture of people who continuously like drive cars with ICEs. Um, I do think that for the masses, autonomy is... Um, definitely more uh, plausible or sustainable for them. They're going to be able to do more on the way to wherever they're going. Um, but the passion to drive vehicles is definitely going to stick around, I think, forever. I, I totally agree that the majority of people nowadays, they don't drive for pleasure, but they just drive to get from A to B. So for a lot of them, um, they can use autonomy, autonomous cars to, you know, do their work while they're driving. Um, at the same time they're moving because they don't want to waste time there's a lot of people who have a lot of things to do and you know they're probably high up there where they have important jobs so that may result better for them but in terms of us like auto enthusiasts or designers we really love to see a car that has emotion and passion behind it and I think as long as we exist like these kind of cars will exist for us but um, it, it I mean it also depends on the way you know how we're going to change the infrastructure for traveling you know um, maybe autonomous cars may require a smart road you know or it's going to take um, more highways because population is growing so i think it also depends on the economy which way it's going if they can afford to actually make these changes what does that say for let's say people who like to drive classics or like to drive cars on their own where would you have two separate highway systems um, I think so. I mean, now we have like the carpool section and I mean, now it's kind of becoming like, a, you know, you, you're paying an amount so you can, you know, avoid traffic. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they actually started to make this kind of thing. I mean, we have Autobahn in, in Germany and, you know, a lot of us wish we would have that, this here. 
so I can actually see that happening, but I guess it depends. Uh, maybe they would build two different highways. I, I don't think it would be like the same highway anymore. I think that um, they're still going to coexist. I think that autonomy is going to create less traffic on the roads, which may um, possibly open up the roads for people who like to drive or who want to. Um, I think that it's necessary to separate the two because you're going to have the people who want to weave in and out of traffic and then you have the others who are not not behind the wheel. They're sitting there doing work. Um, I think, you know, like they're definitely going to have to coexist. Um, it's just the evolution of cars. It's just going to be a hard, uh, a really hard thing to accomplish to have both of them on the road at the same time. I asked some people this before and they suddenly were saying well, something that I didn't really expect, but it sounded like a bad movie, is what happens if somebody, you know, somehow breaks into the system and suddenly you have these autonomous cars that are doing, you're at, you know, at some evil person's, uh, you know, whatever they decide to do. Well, I, there was a, an episode on a car show, I forget which one it was, but they were doing uh, Jeep Cherokee and they hacked into the system and they could drive, they could adjust what the driver was doing uh, remotely. So um, I think that's a possibility. I mean, we get our credit cards hacked all the time. It is a nightmare, um, but there, I, I don't know what there could be done to prevent that. Yeah, but you're, if you're going to surrender like your cars uh, into a complete system, that's certainly something that needs to be taken care of, don't you think? Yeah, yeah I mean, um, I, I definitely seen some like TV shows that have actually had this as part of the the problem, where this car got hacked and this guy almost died. I think it is a scary thing. I mean, having all electronic, uh, there are benefits to it as well. Um, like Tesla, you know, you can update your your just your car and like performance that's a benefit but at the same time you know it can be very dangerous because people can hack i mean this happens all the time um now like for example my mom she doesn't like messing with cars you know she doesn't like to drive either but maybe this is a better car for her because she doesn't have to worry about like if a valve breaks or if anything happens there's less things to fix so for someone who's always worried about something like that, like it would be a more beneficial car. Car Hacker the movie, who's going to be the star? Oh, come on, it's going to be action star. Who do you think? Jason Statham. Ah. <laughs> would he be the good guy or the bad guy? <laughs> uh, he'd be the double agent. Double agent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. That's a good idea. Who do you think? I think uh, Will Smith will be the guy, the old guy, who, um, who actually went through this before, and Jason Statham goes to ask him, like what he should do about it. Now, what about someone who isn't a car guy and likely has never been to the Pasadena College of Art and Design? Guy drives trucks. MMA fighter Chael Sonnen. We've had him on uh, an early Talking About Cars, as a matter of fact. I think he joined us on Talking About Cars 79. I asked him during an interview for an upcoming MMA event whether or not he would use driverless cars. Yeah, I would. I, I, you know, I know that technology failed a little bit. They tried it out in Arizona, and the car wrecked. So uh, I don't know that I'd be in a huge hurry, and I don't think I'd put my kids in it. But just for the, the story of it, for times like this, I would love to brag to you right now and tell you that I've been in one and, and make you jealous. I mean, it's a little futuristic for me, but I embrace technology. So, yeah, if they came up with a driverless car, I would try it out. The way car people are, it's almost like you want to always want to be in control of your own destiny. I don't see you as a guy that is not in control of his own destiny. Yeah, I hear you on that, and I personally like, I enjoy driving, I enjoy controlling the radio and driving and, and zoning out a little bit, getting from point A to point B, but 
uh, I would try it. I, I, I will admit to you, I would try it. I'm not in a huge hurry for it. You know, even Amazon is talking about having delivery uh, through drones. And, you know, I, I, I screech at, at the thought of being in a society where we get these drones flying books and packages all over the place. But I also don't want to slow it down. If that's the advancement of the world, then let's see what happens. MMA fighter, Chael Sonnen. By the way, you can hear his Talking About Cars 79 on our Talking About Cars Classic podcast. It's on iTunes. Now, Jeff Allen, who along with Talking About Cars 74 guest Perry Barnt, you ever notice how basically everybody intermingles and intertwines with Talking About Cars now in the car world? Anyway, Jeff and Perry were on the CNBC show, Car Chasers, and Jeff runs Flat 12 Gallery in Texas. Now, many people say they have cars in their DNA. Well, Jeff's association with cars kind of happened early in his life. And I mean really early. Wow. The first car I remember growing up was a 1957 Chevy that my dad owned since I think around 68. And I think the reason I know that car so well is because my room where my crib was was also full with all the parts off that 57 Chevy as he was, uh, you know, he was in the Air Force didn't make a lot of money and we didn't have a big house so obviously this was where he kept the car parts for the car he was building and then he had a kid so let's put the kid in with the car parts so I guess that's the reason I ended up the way I am but that that exposure could have very well been part of that so just to visualize this the parts were not in the crib but they were just all around the bedroom they were all around the bedroom there was a hood there was bumpers there was all kinds of stuff like that so the funny thing about that is my dad still owns that car to this day in his current house, he actually built a room inside the house, which is heated and air conditioned for the car. So I've always looked at that car as probably my older brother in certain ways. And uh, I definitely know the car has been better taken care of than I ever was, right? <laughs> no, I mean, my dad's a good guy and he, and, and he taught me right from wrong. And, and I probably wouldn't be where I am today without him. But uh, it is kind of funny because his passion for that car has, you know, gone through all the years. Even to the fact of, uh, which is quite a funny story, he actually sold it in the 80s because my mother was tired of scraping the windshield with the ice. Her car was outside. My dad's cars were in the garage. Where, where, was this in Texas? Yes, this was in Texas. And she got completely fed up. I'm not, I'm not going through another winter out there with an ice scraper, you know, on her Eldorado. I think she drove it like an 85 Eldorado. Uh -huh. And... Uh, so he sold his 57 Chevy and uh, we moved to California and years went on and then he ended up going back to Texas and he ended up because this was, you know, before 9-11 so he could actually track. He knew the VIN number to this car. He never left any of that behind. He kept all the original paperwork so he could literally track the history of the car and he found the guy. And the, and, and the funny thing was the guys, the guy lived four blocks from the dealership. So my dad, every day after work, religiously, and he's a short guy. I don't know if you saw the show, but he's, he's about 5'7". You know, he's not a big guy. He would literally drive over in a truck, back the truck up into the guy's driveway, hop in the bed of his three-quarter ton truck and look through the windows at his 57 Chevy. And he did this for about, I think it was 13 months before he finally broke the guy into selling him back the car. Isn't that a story? So the big question is, as much as your older brother that is, did he ever let you ride your older brother? <laughs> you know, it's funny, he, he, he asked, well, he got really scared because when I was uh, young, he took me to a couple roundy round races, right? And I saw these cars going around getting banged up and sliding in the dirt, and I thought that would be fun. So I told him growing up as a kid, I said, hey, 
when I get older, I want to do this with your 57 Chevy. He didn't find that very amusing. Uh, but since his car has been rebuilt, he, he keeps insisting that I drive it. And I feel like I, I don't want to drive it. You know, it's one of those things. I mean, I actually laughed at him because he calls the builder, Joel Hoffman, a real famous car builder. And he says, uh, what kind of seatbelts are you? Need one of these elaborate seatbelts. And I'm like, why? Why do you want the elaborate seatbelts? To drive it from the garage into the private room? <laughs> Because the car never comes out unless the weather and the stars are aligned. You know, you know certain car guys? Yeah. <laughs> and my dad will actually go out and check the streets to see if somebody overwatered, and there's puddles before he pulls his car out. So now we're talking about a hard-top post? Hard -top. A hard-top Bel Air. In the Air Force, it was funny because he was also putting himself through college, so he used to street race his car uh, to pay for his books. <laughs> That's pretty interesting, right? So the funny thing was about it is when he first built it, the car was, you know, 57 Chevy Bel Air, black car, black interior. He went in and uh, he went to a wrecking yard and found a wrecked 69 Z28. Okay. Took the 302 DZ motor out of it with the four-speed Muncie. Nice. Had a 410 rear end gear, 411, I don't know which one it was. You know, you're so close there. And uh, this is a car that he ran on the streets, and it was his daily driver. And growing up as a kid, you know, he put uh, Impala bucket seats in it and an Impala back seat in it with that speaker. He thought that speaker was really cool, right, with the Impala. So growing up as a kid, I thought this was the interior these cars came with. So circa, this is a funny story, so circle all the way back to like 1986, we go to an auction, right? And this tells you how naive I am. And, and I kind of rebelled. I was really into European cars. You know, as a kid, if your family's into domestic and they're diehard Chevy people, you either become Ford or European or whatever, right? So we go to this auction, and he's looking at this, you know, pristine, numbers matching, all original 57 Chevy. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, wow, what's with the bench seat and the <laughs> ugly pattern? Wow, you, you know, you're, I said, what happened to this car? Why did the guy redo it like this? It looks hideous. And my dad's like, no, this is stock, son. But I grew up with thinking they all had bucket seats and that really cool speaker with the Impala running through it. Cause he had the Impala steering wheel too on the car. You know, oh, okay. you know it's a big deal yeah. in, the, in the hot rod world. Yeah. So yeah. Wow, that's, <laughs> that's a great story. So based on the fact that obviously you were traumatized living with a growing up at a very young age with a 57 Chevy, yes. what was your first car? My first car I bought when I was 13 years old, it was a 69 Z28, uh, numbers matching car, um, Cortez Silver. I actually searched the country for a hugger orange one. To give you a little background on that, I had worked for my dad in his shop and uh, he paid me $100 a week, which I thought was big money. And he insisted that I save that money and not spend it on childish things like, you know, Rambo knives and uh, bow and arrows, uh, you know. Understandable. Yeah, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So I had kind of uh, accumulated a pretty good sum because I was working in a shop since I was nine or something, or probably when I was still in diapers, I don't know. But I had $3,500 saved up. And maybe he matched some of that money, I don't know. We'll, we'll say he did anyway, right? So I had $3,500 saved up, and he said, what do you want to spend it on? I go, I want to buy my, a car at 13. And he's like, what kind of car? And I go, 69Z28. And I don't know why, I really don't. You know, I, I was into Ferraris and Porsches at the time, but I probably figured out I couldn't afford those. But do you I remember where you ever saw a 69Z28 at that point? No, I don't. Uh, well, you know, I had one on my wall. I had, I had, I actually had pictures of one on my wall, so that's probably where it came from. And um, so we searched the country for months, and we were driving to Mexico and Oklahoma, Arkansas, you know, different, all over Texas, which is a huge state. 
and we were searching out these cars and we could never make a deal on, on any of these cars. And we finally found one about five miles outside of town out of Lubbock and uh, we bought the car. It was a Cortez silver car, black stripes, had the eight grand tack, the rosewood wheel, all that good stuff. And I had that car for two years. I was turning 15, I was about to get my hardship license, which meant I could drive to and from school. My dad knew straight up, my kid so dumb he's going to kill himself he drives this car. No power steering, no power brakes, you know, four-speed car. I like to go fast. What can I say? So. Crazy, isn't it? We find so many people who, in the car biz, that somehow, I don't know, what is it? Do you think it's DNA? I think it's DNA. I do. I think it's in your blood. And so, I'll never forget this. It was, a, it was a, the 4th of July before. My birthday's in May, so it was the, a year before. We took it to uh, out to Buffalo Lake to this party, and I, I insisted. It was a Corvette party because my dad was like, vice president of the Corvette Club or something like that. So I said, oh, let's take my Camaro, you know, because I wanted to show off my Camaro. I'm, you know, I'm, what, 14 years old? So we drive the car out there, and that's when my dad predetermined that car was way too fast, and I was probably going to kill myself. So we sold the car, and that's what started the other part of my career, because we sold the car for $8,500. So mind you, I'm 15 years old. I just made $5,000 on flipping a car. And I thought, how cool is this, right? And I bought a 1986 lowered short wide Chevy pickup where the 305 couldn't get out of its own way, but it looked really good. Yeah. You know, it had centerline wheels, Alpine stereo, that's all I cared about then, right? And I drove that car for probably about six months and then IROC Zs were hitting the market hot and heavy. And I was like, I gotta have an IROC. You know, and, and, and it's so funny because I talk about the horsepower today, living in this age, and how cool it is for all these kids growing up, and I hope they realize what they're dealing with because I think we had a whopping 205 horsepower or 190, depending on what package you had. Uh, and there's, you know, there's cars out here now that are, you know, EcoBoost is running what 300. Yeah. I mean, come on, you know. Moms are driving cars like that That's now. Right. I mean, it's like, our, our in fact, the fact that, what is it, the Dodge Challenger, if you go over to Enterprise or any rental place, you get the six-cylinder Dodge Charger, uh, excuse me, Dodge Challenger, probably the same engine. Yeah, I mean, you're talking 300-some-odd horsepower. Yeah. Yeah, you got 300-some-odd horsepower in a minivan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, who would have thought that? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So we're in a really cool time in this automotive industry. You know, we have cars coming out of the factory that you can go down and register and drive tomorrow and have 800 horsepower. It's crazy. Yeah, it's it's the world has definitely changed for a lot of automotive gearheads like you and a lot of other people as well. I, I always look at what is in people's garages and to do that, your flat twelve business and how did that develop? I mean, was that just an offshoot of you discovering how to flip cars? No. Um, what happened was uh, I was getting ready to graduate high school. My dad had an automotive shop in Temecula, California, and he said, uh, "Son, I'm gonna let you run the shop for me." And I, and I looked at him seriously, and I looked at my nails, and I said, I've got to be honest with you, I'm tired of getting dirt under my nails. I don't want to do this. Uh, so I'm going to go sell cars. And that's what I did. And uh, I went to work for a Chevy store. Um, right away, I, you know, at 18 years old, I, you know, I'll never forget it. My first month in the car business, I made eight grand. I thought I died and went to heaven. I mean, money just fell from the trees. I bought everything I could. I was, I was broke uh, the week later, you know. You won the lottery. I did, you know, in, in my mind. So... That's what started it all. I loved it. I loved this idea of not having a job where I was capped at a certain amount. It was up to me to go out and make it. So by the time I turned, tw before my 21st birthday, I was a used car manager running a, uh, of a store. And then, uh, you know, before I was 25, I was a GSM. And then before my 20, uh, or uh, 
it was after my 29th birthday, I became a GM. And my whole goal was to fast track uh, to own my own dealership. And uh, back in those days, you know, that was when the whole minority thing was coming into play. And uh, the manufacturers were telling me, Jeff, if you're on the list, you know, you may never get a store, you know, even though you have all the potential in the world. So at that point, I said, it was around 2002, I, I looked at Meg and I said, you know what, I'm not getting any younger and I'm, I'm sure working a lot, you know, and uh, I think I want to do it for myself. You know, I, I got tired of going to stores and um, turning them around and buying cars I didn't care about. And that's really where I got it. It almost became like that vanilla. You know, when you go to when you go to a factory sale for Ford or Toyota or whatever, and you're buying Corollas and Camrys, you can't tell me that's exciting. You can't tell me there's a car dealer in the world, a used car manager that goes, "Wow, I get an adrenaline rush every time." Uh, Sierra Beige Camry rolls across the show, you know, the sale, and I get to bid. Oh, wow! Did I? You see that XLE I just bought? Woo! You know, they don't do that. But when you go out and you buy a, a car that we're all passionate about, whether it's a '69 Camaro, if it's a Ferrari 308, you know, you cover the gamut. It's an air-cooled 911. There's something exciting about ownership of that, you know, and that's what the passion is for me. Meg always says, you don't have a problem buying. It's the selling part you have a problem with. And she's right, you know, and I get all emotional and I'll be like, oh, man, I just can't believe I had to sell that car. You know, like one, one day she goes, I want to buy this house. And at the time I was, you know, I was car rich and cash poor. And so I went in and I sold my, uh, I had a 70 AER Cuda. And I had a uh, big block, 60, uh, 65 Corvette, but it was a modified car with a 67 hood. A lot of people did that with Stinger hood. And I went and sold those cars at an auction. And I literally walked off stage, put my sunglasses on because the tears were rolling down my face. You know, and I'm a six foot five bald guy. It's a little hard, <laughs> you know, it's a little hard to say, how, you know, some dust flew in my eye. But I was emotional about it. But you know what? It was one of those things. We needed a down payment for the house. The house was important to us. You know, we made some really good real estate deals. I got that. You know, but me, I'm like, I'm never going to find another one. She's like, come on. You say that every time, but then you drag more stuff back. You don't have a problem finding anything, you know, and it's those cars. It's those things that we do, you know. I bought a uh, 65 Corvette that Dick Goldstrand actually raced at Riverside Raceway back in the day. It was a coupe. And if anybody knows about Dick Goldstrand, most of the time he'd race convertibles. So it was kind of rare, you know, and the stories, and I didn't believe it because they're all rumors. You know, you're, you go to a car guy, he's like, yeah, Dick Goldstrand raced this and back in Riverside. Look at these weld marks where the roll cage used to be. But the car is so modified, had these wicked flares on it. And this other guy did the flares and, you know, it had, it had these great backstories. So I literally, the car ran and drove, but it was ugly. It was like green and gold and you know some 70s you know deal with the headlights missing out of the front they were sucked in behind the grill but it's just evil looking right and i love that energy and that you know i love those custom cars from the 70s i don't know why but i'm not a real big on stock things i don't know i think they're just a little boring at some point so i buy this car and i tell myself i'm not gonna really hurry up and finish this car i'm gonna slow this one down so I'd go out and sand on some areas. I made it look really nasty, but the car could drive. And I knew because the day I finished it, I knew Meg was gonna make me sell it. So I had that car for seven and a half years, right? And, and little things would happen to it. You know, it would it eventually went into paint, but oh, you know, we, we gotta get the bumpers re-chromed. That's gonna take a while, two years or something like that. So- She never caught on? I think she did, but I think she was good with it because I, I was busy doing other things and, and making money. So, but it was one of those pet projects of mine. And I guarantee the funny thing about that car was the day Eric and I finished that car, 
the first time I drove it, finished, completed. And Boyd, the late Boyd Coddington actually made the wheels for this car for me. Um, so that was pretty cool. We loaded on a trailer and we took it to an auction and sold it. You're kidding. No. And you know why that part, part of that is when you build a car to that extreme and you're that passionate about it, I didn't want to see that car ever get a rock chip. I didn't want to have that moment where uh, it's time to redo it. I'm not really good at redoing things again, so I'm kind of a one-hit wonder on that. I do it once and I'm like good with it. And that's kind of like the 63 Ford Falcon we built here. We wrapped it just because I didn't want to deal with, you know, having a very expensive paint job because I'm going to run that car. I'm going to run that car in every event I can because it's just a crazy car, you know, so... Uh, For some of the people who are not here, kind of describe the car. Okay, it's a 63 Ford Falcon, and if you can imagine, uh, the theme was kind of based off what what happened to 63 Ford Falcon if it got stuck in Japan. And so it has a kind of JDM feel to it, right? But it's all, but believe me, it's all Ford-powered. We, we put a, a Coyote motor in it with a supercharger from Roush. It's making it 675 horsepower out of a car that weighs less than 3,000 pounds, but it's got radius wheel wells, the guy before me, I can't take credit for this, the guy before me, and it's all over the internet, actually made the frame, lowered the feel, and did the radius wheel wells. But then he got tired of the car and he just gutted it and tossed it aside. So we, I was out surfing the net and I go, whoa, that's cool. I was actually looking for another project and I jumped on that one and I said, this is good, I can do this. So I bought a wrecked 2014 Mustang, probably left the cars and coffee because there wasn't a straight fender on it anywhere. And it wasn't a car that really could be put back into circulation. That's what I wanted. But I wanted a car that had a good, you know, structure as far as, you know, powertrain. Nothing broke there. And so we took everything out of that, put it in that car, including the dash, the console. We use the wiring harness. Literally, we have the, the keyless remote. The, choop, choop, the car is 63 Falcon. Choop, choop, alarm hits, you go. And it's a trip. Even Eric put in the speed sensing uh, windshield wiper thingy in the dash. Well, you know, he's a geek, and when it comes to that stuff, he just goes nuts over so, electronics. So where did you get the uh, Japanese license plate? I got the Japanese license plate online. That's the guy that makes plates, and I don't know if he's at a prison or what, but they come from Germany, and I tell you what, they're the most... German prison. Uh, could be. Well, there's, but they stamp them quick. You know, I get the plates in three days from Germany. From the time you order... Yeah, and check them out. Go look at those plates. Look at the reflective. I mean, they look real. I made them for the AutoNation truck that we're, we did over here for charity, and on the front I had a, a California plate made because their their uh, AutoNation is you know coast to coast, so from California to Florida. Look at those plates, and tell me. I don't know. I don't know how, that, but you know, a lot of people make the plastic ones and all that stuff, and and I wanted something authentic, so we did that. We called the car Ronin, which means if anybody knows in Japanese, that's a that's a samurai with no master, and that the reason we did that was because. We want this car to go out and campaign and do drifting, autocrossing, uh, road rallies, airstrip attacks. I just want to hit all these different things. I want to have like a triathlete of cars. And I wanted something I could do it in. I wasn't worried about, you know, having $200,000 wrapped into a car. I, I don't have fun in those cars. I stress about them. You know, I stress something's going to happen to them. This car, I, I'm, I'm ready to go to do donuts repeatedly. Thank goodness Nitto's on board. You know what I mean? Because I'm going to need a lot of tires. So, so you know, that's that's the whole thing. And we're real pleased to be here at SEMA. And we actually got picked by Optima. We got a golden ticket yesterday. So we're at the top, you know, we have, they picked 25 cars. And today at 1.30, they picked the 10 that are going from there. I, I was curious about your show, Car Chasers, that was on yes. for a while. Give me a quick rendition of uh, how you got into that. Wow, that's very interesting. I always wanted to be on TV. Uh, I always wanted to be an actor. Um, 
that was part of the passion of it. And then uh, I was really inspired when I saw Chip Foose on television and he took uh, all the aspects of what I thought was acting and put it in the car world. And I said, oh, I can do two things I love. Um, so, and, I, and you know, up to that point, I'd only made B-rated horror movies. You know, I would always come in as a killer or a lumberjack or something. So I was like, man, this would be cool to do this. So Meg actually wrote the show in 2004 and we pitched it to a company I won't name. And they liked it so much that they stole it. They came out with another show. Uh, and then the funny thing about it was they cast the guy that looked just like me. And so I was really shocked at how that turned out. And then uh, years later, we fast forward, we actually got a phone call and um, this crazy guy calls me up named David Leapson and he says, hey, I wanna do a build show where I wanna take two teams and give them 72 hours to build a car. Can this be done? And I said, no, did you see overhaul? No, this cannot be done. And I said, well, you're gonna have a ninja crew come in at night and finish these cars? What are you gonna do? He goes, no, they're gonna build round the clock, nonstop, no sleep. I go, you're nuts. And I never thought I'd hear from the guy again. And a few months later, he calls me, says, hey, I'm gonna fly you out to California. I want you to supervise and produce this show. And uh, so we started and we did, uh, we did two seasons with Speed Channel producing the show. So we were behind the camera and uh, that really opened my eyes to a lot of stuff. And then at that point, um, David would see me on my one day off because you know you film six days a week, 12 hours a day. So on my one day off, I was still buying cars because I was in Southern California, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd roll into the shop with a, you know, I had a, a 288 bodied uh, 328 Ferrari I picked up that was a race car. I drove that to the set, right? And David's like, man, you are, you come up with the weirdest stuff, you know? And I was doing a lot of, uh, helping Tim Allen sell a lot of cars at that time and Charlie Sheen and some other guys. So the whole thing was like, you know, it was kind of surreal. And uh, it turned into sitting down with a meeting with them and uh, ended up doing a uh, sizzle reel for Discovery Channel. Discovery was trying to get back into the car space. They had been out of it for a while. Uh, they had two two shows to pick from. That was us and Fast and Loud. Obviously, we know which one they picked. Uh, and then uh, CNBC stepped in and said, "Hey, if you're not going to take car, you know, the show, we'd like to buy it out from under you." So they did. So they bought it from Discovery, and the rest is kind of history. And we did three seasons of it. I'm I'm pleased to. I'm really happy with the outcome of it. You know, the international. This show's gone internationally in every country. Uh, we're recognized here m more by the uh, you know people from Brazil and Australia than we are probably from the U.S. people uh, because the show's still airing today and it airs on History and Discovery in the other countries, so it's kind of interesting how the distribution went. And uh, you know Jay Leno uh, watched the show obviously, and uh, he's good friends with the head of CNBC, and he came in and said, "Well, you know, why aren't you doing my show?" So. Uh, so, you know, here's the deal. So then, you know, who's not going to take Jay Leno over Jeff Allen? I get it, right? I mean, this is the late you night. You guys were on at the same time, pretty no, much. No, we weren't. In fact, that was the, the original plan was we were going to be on the same time. I thought that's what the network was working for, but Jay had another idea. So anyway, it's a cool thing for me because um, I, I was a big fan of Johnny Carson. So now we have something in common. We both got replaced by Jay Leno. <laughs> Two quick questions, then I'll sure. let you go. I appreciate it. Uh, Car that you no longer have that you wish you could have back. Oh man, we don't have time. Okay, give me one. <laughs> give me one. We'll bring you on another time for more. Well, give me one. Oh man, that's such a hard question. There's so many cars that I've sold. You know, I had Jerry Lee Lewis's uh, convertible Corvette, but probably the car that I wish I had. I really fought hard to get this car. Was I, I had in high school a 1981 Corvette that was made into a convertible. We used a 75 rear clip off another car but it looked like an 81, because the factory never made one, which they should have, because that was a cool car. 
And then we had a 427 in it, 390 horsepower motor with a low profile intake on it. So everything was under the hood look factory. And it was the best sleeper ever because this is when all those Buick people were talking all kinds of smack. And I eat Corvettes for breakfast, tear up Mustangs. And I'd say, let's go, let's run. And that's what I did on my time off. And, and it probably got myself in a little bit of trouble, uh, street racing like that. But hey, you know, what are you gonna do? When you come from a dad that did it for books for college. so. That was the one car I wish I could get back because I sold the car once uh, I figured out I couldn't smog it in California. We moved the car from Texas to California. I had no idea about the smog law. The first time you go to a smog station and the guy lifts the hood and goes, this motor's not supposed to be here. I'm like, really? <laughs> well, it fit, right? So I thought if it fit, you're good to go. But no, they wanted, he's like, you gotta take this to a referee. And I'm like, come on, really? So I ended up selling it Pomona Swap Meet and it went to Japan. That was during the big block, big block Corvette phase, and they were really into custom cars too. And uh, I've actually been checking all the time on Craigslist and online, and I'm because you know a lot of those cars are starting to now come back, and I'm hoping that car will reappear. Top two cars on the on your I want that car list. Top two that's on your list of cars you want. Uh, that would be an F40, definitely, and probably the new Ford GT but I didn't want to fill out the application because I thought, who's going to tell me how to spend my money? <laughs> I love Ford, but man, come on, really? You want me to fill out an app and tell you I'm going to spend half a million dollars? <laughs> no, no, sir. I'll wait for the secondhand market. Maybe I'll be able to buy one for 450. <laughs> Jeff Allen, who will be one of the car stars appearing at the Classic Auto Show at the LA Convention Center on March 2nd through the 4th of 2018. Remember, Get our newest podcasts on Radio.com and iTunes. Remember to subscribe. And if you're on iTunes, also rate us and leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you and get some feedback. Our website is TalkingAboutCars.net. Until next time, I'm Randy Cardoon. Join me as we have some fun talking about cars.